I'm Grant, an engineering and technology leader who will share the secrets of IT with you. Listen up, because we're about to get into it. Hey everybody, so I'm going to be getting back to my software developer roots in this episode. Now there are always so many topics I could choose from and not enough time to record all of them, but maybe over the next couple of years I'll get to more. So if there's a burning topic you want me to address, please let me know. Uh, the topic this time is going to be on the difference between the major programming languages. So this one was a listener request. Thank you so much. Before I give you the list though and start working through it, let's talk about what exactly a programming language is. It should be obvious, but really, a language is just a set of instructions for telling a computer what to do. Most of the languages that you're familiar with are going to be general purpose languages. The language itself is an abstraction that's human readable so that we can understand what's, what it's doing or what the program's doing or the computer. The abstraction doesn't usually know or care what microchip it's going to run on. It could be run on an Intel, an AMD, an ARM, or many other types of microchip out there and each one has its own instruction set. So in order for you to run your code, it has to be transformed, sometimes into multiple intermediary languages, but eventually gets turned into machine code, which is also known as binary code, which can then become voltages on the wires inside the circuits and the microchips. The key here being that a human can understand the code, even if that takes training. The code then will get transformed, like I said, into another form. This happens usually by either a compiler or an interpreter. And the point being that whatever thing does that transformation, your code gets turned into something else that's more understandable by the computer and less understandable by a person. Now, this process here could be taking your code and one line of your code gets expanded into 45 separate distinct commands at the next level of translation. So 45 commands are way easier for a computer to understand and way more difficult for a person to understand, which is why we don't write that level of code anymore. There was a point in history where we did. You may hear about assembly code or assembler as a language, and that's kind of the thing that I'm talking about here. We're not going to dive in depth into that, but maybe I'll cover it in another episode. But that's what I'm saying is this process could repeat a couple of times before your one line of code gets turned into something that looks much more closely like the voltages that would be loaded onto wires inside of the computer. This is a very complicated process. In fact, it's what's, what my undergraduate degree is in. So there's at least four years of schooling involved, and I would say that's just to get the basics down so a person can do work as an entry-level engineer. And even then, what it, one of the things that I thought was very cool about learning this stuff was that we would learn mathematic, computer science, and electrical theory behind how a processor works. And then, you know, do our schoolwork, which is implementing that theory somehow. But inevitably, there were a few times where we knew CPUs on the market were doing way more advanced things than the theories that were published and that we were learning in school. So just in learning this stuff, you'll discover that there are trade secrets known by companies like Intel and IBM that they're not publishing or giving back to academia. And you'll, you may stumble in on those sometimes. So it was really cool. It was a life-changing experience to hit walls like that and start to poke around at the cutting edge of knowledge. And by the time I was a senior in college, there were some skills, like JTAG programming, that I knew more about than some of my professors. That's not an indictment of the professors or the education system. You all know that I was working almost full-time for Northrop Grumman in research and development. So I got good at some things my professors just didn't do every day, and it really helped me understand how much knowledge is available out there. 
I'll probably do a video on TikTok about this, but if you think you tried something in computer science and didn't like it, you could continue to try things in computer science for the next five years and you'll probably just begin to scratch the surface. So don't lose hope if you've tried writing a Python program and found it was too hard or wasn't something you enjoyed doing. That's about all you learned, was that Python wasn't for you at that time in your life. There are a lot of things you can do. I'd actually like to draw a map of engineering sometime and help map out what a career path may look like by showing, you know, different domains of engineering that a person could go into. Because once we start talking about programming languages and then looking deeper into them at the compilers and the interpreters and the hardware they run on, that's when you really see how electrical engineering and mathematics and computer science, how these things all really come together and why modern computing is such a an amazing gift that humanity has developed over time, uh, why it took so long for us to get to this point. I think it's really, really cool what humanity has been able to develop and accomplish, but instead of looking down the programming language, let's look across the programming languages. I'm going to get a little weird here, so I hope that's okay, but this is just how my brain works. So I feel like the different software development disciplines are different people that I know. They almost have their own personalities. When I'm writing PHP or doing web development, that's like its own thing. It's pretty rigid. I groan when I look at CSS and start tweaking the layout of things on a web page, but hey, that's web development. It feels like I do a lot of context switching and it's always just barely holding itself together. I know that one simple error in my PHP or CSS will jack the whole thing up and make it entirely unusable. So I've been there so many times, that's just part of its personality. I accept it and have to move on. When I compare that experience to writing a Java program, I feel like programming at that level is more stable and rock solid. Yes, you can still jack things up in Java with a simple error, but the solutions you build can be much more elegant. Maybe more mathy or intricate is the right word. It has its own feel to me, and I like creating classes and thinking about inheritance and how objects relate to one another, and I particularly like that Java doesn't allow multiple inheritance. We'll talk about that probably when we get to C and C++. But the point I'm making here is that get into some of these things. If you don't like them, try something different. Don't like Java? Maybe you like scripts better than programs. Maybe you like running tools that other people have built and enjoy configuring them or tweaking their YAML or XML. I don't know. You've got your thing. I got mine. And nobody's going to do this work for you. You have to find the thing that you like by trying new things. It takes time and effort, but some of you are innately curious. You like this sort of thing, and good for you. Others, it's gonna take more effort, and just like reading books, you're gonna find the genre or the authors that are your favorite by reading a bunch. And then, just to pile analogies on top of one another, it's like playing an instrument. You get over that beginner's hump, and then it starts to kinda get fun. And then later, there's a point when you're so good at this craft that you transcend languages altogether, and begin thinking in terms of systems and how they connect. It doesn't really matter what language you're using at the end of the day. You think about your tech stack, how maintainable the system is, how you can monitor for performance and its health, what tools are available so you don't have to rewrite them from scratch. And that's when it gets like extra fun. 
It can be a bit of a drag learning the basics. I'll give you all that, but if you stick it out and persevere, then you too can reach the point of transcendence where you think about systems and just really have fun with the whole domain of software engineering. And with that, let's go ahead and talk top programming languages of 2022. I said I was gonna discuss the differences between languages in this episode, and I will but I'm going to go about it by working down the list of top programming languages. These are going to be the most relevant ones to the most people. And if you are a listener, then you're probably smart enough to draw your own conclusions as I talk about each one. There are just dozens, if not hundreds of languages out there. So doing a comparison between them isn't really feasible, but I can at least talk about them in general and uh, talk about what kind of domains that they might be important for. So hopefully as I work down the list, you'll draw your own conclusions. And if you've got questions, you know how to send them to me. So there's a couple of ways to get this data of what are the top programming languages. And I'm going to be using people. I think that's how it's pronounced. The acronym is PYPL. And you can get this data yourself at pypl.github.io. People stands for the Popularity of Programming Language Index. That's why I pronounce it people, right? It's the, the Y in popularity. So this, lang- this index is created by analyzing how often language tutorials are searched on Google. Stack Overflow does also do a developer survey, so know that it exists, but I'm not using that data here. I feel like the general Google search is a better gauge of tech stack popularity than the limited and manually submitted results of Stack Overflow or a survey. So the languages I'm going to dive into now are listed from most to least popular by the People Index, and the first one is Python. This was actually the very first programming language that I learned. Technically, the first one was a form of BASIC on my TI-86 calculator, but that was really the gateway drug that led me to Python. BASIC gets a lot of hate because it's so easy. It is really a real programming language, but it's real in the sense that a motor scooter is also a motorcycle. Nobody on a Vespa is going to call themselves a biker or say that they ride a motorcycle, even though that skill is transferable. And BASIC is pretty much the motor scooter of programming. It's not super powerful, but it gets the job done. So Python was probably not a great choice for me. I wanted to build video games, and there were much better languages for that at the time, namely C or C++, although the entire tech landscape has changed since then. I wouldn't even recommend trying to build a game without using a game engine like Unity or Unreal Engine or some tool like that anymore. But back then, Pygame was a thing, and it could be used. Games were pretty simple still back in 2000. I mean, there were like a million Flash games and things you could do like that on the internet, but I wanted to build like a real game, you know? And Python just wasn't up to par, honestly. But if you've ever used Python, I think you might agree with me that there are better languages for building games. Python is a dynamically typed language, which means that type safety is checked at runtime. What this means is that you can pass around objects in Python, and if there's a mismatch between the types, then it's going to throw an exception and kill the runtime. Python does not get compiled, rather it gets interpreted by a program. So when you run a Python script, another program actually translates Python into machine code for you. And that's the reason why you can't just release a Python script for people to use. They'd have to download the Python runtime to use it, and that increases the burden of releasing software. One way around this is to also bundle the Python runtime with your scripts, which actually raises another topic. These are technically called scripts and not programs. They don't get compiled into machine code. They get interpreted when you want to run them. 
Some languages do get fully compiled or translated into machine code before you can run them. So if I were gatekeeping computer science, then compiled languages are the ones I would consider quote unquote real programming languages. Other languages get kind of halfway compiled, Java and C sharp, I'm looking at you, that are interpreted or JIT compiled, JIT standing for just in time, compiled at runtime again. So yes, Java and C sharp also require a tool to interpret them at runtime, but let's stick to Python here. As of 2022, Python is really easy to learn, and it's one reason why it's become so widespread. In my opinion, it was always a little niche, like a solution looking for a problem, and you can sort of see that in its roots. It was built on a core principle of being easy to read, not an actual solution for a problem. And with the advent of machine learning, what we saw were a lot of really smart people who were not computer scientists or programmers doing things that could be sped up through the use of programs. So Python filled that gap. People built out a robust set of tools in the language for the AI and machine learning domains, so it's one of the top languages in that field. It should be obvious that an interpreted language like Python is slower than a fully compiled one. A fully compiled program is compiled specifically to run on a known CPU instruction set. So you would build a program for Windows, maybe even a 32-bit or 64-bit version of Windows. And Windows then runs the program by translating your program, also called a binary, onto the instruction set for the underlying hardware. It may be surprising to learn that the Pentium processor has a slightly different instruction set than a Core i9. So Windows does this mapping for us through HAL, H-A-L, which stands for Hardware Abstraction Layer. All you do is set your compiler to the target operating system, and the rest of the process is pretty much done for you. Without this magic, things are too rigid and computing probably would never have reached the level it did today. This is still a translation by Windows into the instruction set of your CPU, but it's the fastest way you can run a program on a big operating system like Windows or Linux that are purpose-built for a general computing environment. Now moving on. Number two, Java. Java was actually the third programming language that I got involved with. I learned it as a second semester freshman, and it was the foundation where I learned about data structures and algorithms. So a lot of mathy stuff. I don't actually think it was the best choice for that, honestly, but it did get me doing a task that made me learn the language. Java is honestly very easy because it comes with a powerful library of functions right out of the box, which are easy to add to your program. It's a little cumbersome to do this in other languages like C. It's not as easy as Python, but it is immensely more powerful from a computing perspective. It's another interpreted language, but this one gets at least half compiled, so it's a fair bit faster than a fully interpreted language. Java is also widely used, so you kind of get it by default on a lot of platforms, or at least the expectation that Java could be installed on it. As of Windows 10, it started to be bundled with the operating system itself. Some of you may call me out on that, because it's also true for Python, but I feel like my earlier concerns about distributing a runtime with your app are still valid for Java, but at least on later versions of Windows, the pain is less. So it's got that going for it. You do have to worry about which runtime you build your Java program with, and which runtime the computer it's running on is using. And this is a pain about distributing interpreted languages. So for example, let's say I have a Java 11 program and distribute it to a computer running Java 17. It's gonna run, and it may even run without any bugs, but you have to test that configuration or ensure that when you distribute your program, you also bundle with it a Java 11 runtime. The version of Java that you build your code with 
is called your JDK. That's your Java development kit. And then when you release it, the version that you run your program with is called the JRE or Java runtime environment. The JDK has a whole lot of extra stuff in it that doesn't come with the JRE. And a lot of that extra stuff is libraries that you may use, but if you build your code and compile it, you don't need to distribute, right? It was, it was unused in the first place. Uh, and it's also got additional libraries that aid in checking the performance of your code and debugging it and doing all sorts of analysis, right? So you don't want to distribute your JDK. You want to distribute and run with the JRE for that reason. Now, if everyone distributed JRE with their package or their program, then, then your system is going to have multiple versions floating around, which leads to possible confusion and bloat, right? A hundred programs with a hundred different, slightly different versions of the JDK or JRE in them uh, are going to be huge. But if you don't distribute it, then your program may not run quite right. It may not have a compatible version of Java available on the system, or randomly it may pick a different version of Java that's on the system that you didn't test with. And that's part of the pain of using Java, managing those versions. You just have to be careful. It is manageable, but it takes a lot of attention. Now, Java's backward compatible, like I said, so you can run a Java 11 program on Java 17, but you can't go in reverse and run a Java 17 program on Java 10 because Java 10 didn't know what was gonna happen in Java 17. Um, and that's because it's backwards compatible, not forwards compatible, right? You want to innovate and build new things into later versions of Java. And so earlier code can't run later versions of Java on it, but you can do the, the opposite. Java is seen mainly in enterprise scale development because it was an early to market web services language. It was a lot easier and faster to write web sockets and web applications in Java than to try and spin something up in C or C++, which I'm going to talk about later. So those built-in functions of Java, as well as its ability to manage memory for the program were what made it really take off. Now, feel free to correct me on this one. I would love to hear from people who probably know more about this space than I do. But I think today Java's biggest market is in the embedded space. But that's just due to the sheer volume of devices that it runs on. Like microchips in your tires that measure tire pressure, and the chips in your credit cards, and the entire internet of things. Not a lot of people know that Java does run on, on embedded devices with a special runtime, but it's there too, because Java's everywhere. But memory management, as I had mentioned earlier, is a new topic to discuss with Java. And it's often called garbage collection. When you create a new object in Java, you don't have to explicitly clean it up. You create the object, then you use it, and then you can forget about it. And Java's gonna handle the cleanup for you. Not all languages will do this, and it's a quality of life feature. Most of the time, you don't want to have to worry about memory management anyways. You just want to be sloppy, get your code to work, and move on to another problem with as few bugs as possible. Memory leaks, in other words, forgetting to clean up allocated memory, is a common bug in languages without memory management built in, like C. And lastly, Java is mainly a statically typed language because it gets compiled. The types of objects that are interacting can be checked at compile time to make sure they interact properly. So that makes it a little safer, in my opinion, than a fully dynamically typed language. With that being said, Java does also support dynamic typing to a lesser degree, though. 
Java allows inheritance between classes and also supports virtual methods and interfaces, which can allow you to achieve runtime polymorphism. I don't actually want to go down that rabbit hole here, though. I want to talk about what these languages can do and keep this episode a little less computer science-y, talking about the differences between languages. But that is a key aspect of Java right there, the ability to achieve runtime polymorphism, which is slightly dangerous from a debugging and software development perspective. You really want to keep things simple. But moving on to the next one, we have JavaScript. What can I say about this language? So JavaScript is highly utilized in a lot of places, but used to be relegated to the front end code for websites. It was intended to make interactions on the internet more dynamic. In this way, you didn't have to refresh the entire page every time you clicked something. Those of you who use the early internet will remember anytime anything changed, the whole page would have to refresh. And so with JavaScript, you could just dynamically update a small portion of the page by running code on the client's web browser and sending data to the, the server and back to you and not have to wait for the click to propagate to the server and trigger an entire full page render. So this is the language that you're going to hear about AJAX calls associated with. AJAX stands for Asynchronous JavaScript and XML, which is ironic because these days we don't use XML like we used to. We actually send data in JSON format, which is key value pairs. JSON stands for JavaScript Object Notation. XML is pretty markup heavy and inefficient and cumbersome as a result. And well, AJAX isn't as catchy as AJAX, so I guess we're stuck with that term. JavaScript these days has expanded to not only front-end development, especially with frameworks like React, Angular, and jQuery that can be utilized, but it's also used in back-end or server-side code utilizing Node.js. And this is both good and bad. It lets your team of developers use a single language for their front and back-end code, but the downside is it's JavaScript. <laughs> JavaScript, if you're not familiar with it on like a personal level, It'll let you do almost anything that you want to do, and it's going to continue to run even if it does something seemingly impossible until the program eventually just kind of crashes and dies. So a small error in one place can compound and propagate to another and then to another, and then maybe your code is going to exit gracefully or maybe it's just going to die on you. Unfortunately, you don't really have any great debugging tools because even though you know it did something naughty, JavaScript thinks everything's peachy. It doesn't throw an error, it doesn't warn you, it just goes about its merry way. For example, what's 1 plus 7? 8, right? Well, what if it's the integer 1 and the letter 7? Ah, now that's 17. No warning, no error, welcome to JavaScript. This sort of thing seems silly until you realize that data being piped around could come from a web browser, transported via JSON, in other words text, and then turned into a var, short for variable. If you assume this data is a number instead of a letter and don't convert it properly, then you're going to get 17 and not 8 when you do your addition. And most of these interactions are implicit in the code, which means you have to explicitly correct and sanitize all of this data. Sanitization of input is actually a whole thing that you do in web development for this reason. That and SQL, which is an, another offender here. So anyways, it's really goofy and tough, but it's literally everywhere on the internet. So I'm not a super fan of JavaScript, but obviously this language does allow us to easily manipulate and transfer data around. And especially with the rise of JSON and NoSQL, JavaScript's finding a use. It can manipulate JSON data natively, 
It doesn't need you to include a library of code to manipulate JSON like Java and many other languages do. So that's sort of where this one fits in. API calls, transferring JSON data, being lightweight and rapid to produce, but also being a bit dangerous, free and loose. It's not compiled and it's dynamically typed. But as an added bonus, it's also a weakly typed language, which means it allows implicit type conversion when an operation involves mismatched types instead of throwing type errors. This is why you can add the integer one to the letter seven, pure chaos. And now for number four, C sharp. C sharp, not to be read as C hashtag or C pound is a Microsoft technology. It was originally called COOL, which stood for C-like object-oriented language. The name was eventually ditched due to trademark issues. C-sharp back in the 2000s was very Java-esque and a little clunky like most Microsoft products of that time. I'm not a Microsoft hater, but I do want to go on a rant a little bit because they have a tendency to close their ecosystem. Like .NET products all work great together, but if you try to use a third-party library that isn't from Microsoft, sometimes things don't always play nice with each other. It's a small gripe I have with pretty much anything Microsoft builds. Microsoft products have their own look and feel. It's like a kid trying to be cool or trying to be a trendsetter, but just not quite being edgy enough. Microsoft will enter markets that are long-standing engineering domains, and then build their own thing to compete, but disregard all the engineering tradition that came beforehand. As a programmer, I wince when I have to use a Microsoft library because it's just so Microsoft-y. I could pick Microsoft code out of a crowd. Whether I am running in the cloud, on an embedded device, an enterprise server, or Linux, or even Mac, I can choose a fairly consistent scripting style and practice and use the same command line navigation. I can also build symbolic links, define environment variables, and do other things in very similar ways. That's like how the world works. And yet, when I get on a Windows computer or server, everything changes to be Microsoftified. None of my other tricks work, and I have to figure out how to do things the Microsoft way. And I guess this is fine. I'll get off my soapbox here, but that's really the pet peeve that I have of Microsoft products. Open source communities build to a standard where collaboration is easy, and Microsoft defines their own standard and builds to that, being sneaky about how third-party support is allowed, but whatever. They've got me captured due to my interest in PC gaming, and their methods have worked fine for them so far. Back in the 2000s, I did like c -sharp more than Java because it was super easy to rapidly build user interfaces with. UIs were actually quite hard to build back in the day, with C, you had to find and utilize a framework to build UIs in, and there was little to no drag and drop editors. And it was complicated with all the memory management you had to do and all the low level processing power that C gives you. Java improved this by providing a built-in framework like AWT or their abstract window toolkit and swing components, which made UIs much faster to build. C-Sharp further improved on this by providing an official drag-and-drop utility where you could visually create your windows and your components. You could still do this with Java, but those capabilities were still all third-party tools and were just really clunky to use. JBuilder, for example. 
I remember doing some layout in that tool and the, the visual editor didn't quite sync with the code underneath all the time. And so there, there were times when you'd go to flip into your code from the visual editor to like hand fill out a method in Java and then you'd flip back to the UI and your components would be moved around or completely missing from that visualization. So it wasn't uh, really the best experience back then. But that was like 20 years ago, wasn't it? I feel old now. So I should probably move on from the 2000s. These days, C Sharp is fairly equivalent to Java in my opinion. It's very portable. You can write once and run anywhere. But C Sharp does have some quality of life improvements in the language itself. So let me explain that. C Sharp can run on multiple platforms because it's also an interpreted language like Java. You'd first write and compile your C Sharp code. I'd obviously recommend doing this on a Windows machine because it's going to be much easier to do this in the Microsoft ecosystem. The compiled code is actually an intermediary language that runs through the .NET interpreter, which is officially called the Common Language Runtime, or CLR. The CLR is part of the .NET framework. So when you release your application, it needs to go to a machine with the .NET framework installed. And this is the same conversation we just had about the Java runtime, so I won't re-explain it again. You're going to see the same problems emerge with C Sharp as with Java. But the one thing that I really like about C Sharp is the way you access data in your objects. In Java, you have a million getter and setter methods to maintain, and it gets cumbersome to just write and maintain them all. And these are explicit functions that you should use to access data in your objects. That process is actually called encapsulation, if you want to look it up. You don't have to do it that way, but it is the best practice, and I'm a glutton for punishment by following discipline and rigor in my code at all times. I don't slack off even when I'm the only developer working on a side project of mine in a personal repository. I always follow best practices regardless of the context, and you should too. In C Sharp, you access data inside objects directly, not through a bajillion overloaded getter and setter methods. The catch is you're probably still using getters and setters. That's just abstracted away from you. It looks like a direct access to a variable in an object, but the person who wrote the object code defined a getter and setter for that variable. So it's baked into the language of C Sharp, but not into Java. C Sharp made it easier to follow best practices by streamlining and creating some simple mechanisms in the language itself to, to enforce that programming rigor. Access to data is just more protected because people can't be as sloppy as they are able to be in Java. It's a human problem, and I actually really do appreciate that mechanism in C Sharp. It's a fun language to write software in. All things considered, why use C Sharp if it's basically the same as Java? Well, I mean, it is and it isn't. Again, if you're in a Microsoft ecosystem and never expect to leave, I'd probably recommend C Sharp. It integrates easy with other Microsoft products that are based on the .NET framework. And often, even as sub-organizations within a large company or enterprise, you'll see Microsoft-only shops. Like, the whole company may be Java-based, but one group, usually an operations or support group, will be a full end-to-end -end Microsoft shop. I've always found that curious, but I mean, I get it. Microsoft products just work well with one another and not with third parties. I know that's me being critical of Microsoft, but I've been around a while and used their products, and that's just my experience with them. So anyways, back to the fact that I just like the experience of writing C-sharp code. The language itself is more satisfying to me to program in than Java. 
And if you're on a non-Windows platform or in an ecosystem with a wide variety of technologies that integrate with one another, then I'd recommend Java. In fact, I'd recommend using Java and OpenJDK. So Oracle owns the Java runtime, and they recently started charging for the use of it at large enterprise scale. Personal use is free, commercial use has restrictions, and Oracle can change this all at their discretion anytime they want, because they own it. OpenJDK and its JRE are still the active, like the real Java runtime, but it's all open source and released under the GPL2 license. So you can do what you want with it at whatever scale you want if you follow the GPL2 rules. C-sharp is also free, but is from Microsoft. So the CLR in the .NET framework is free for now, sort of like JRE had been for decades. Just something to consider. These licensing uh, arrangements can have a major impact on what you do with your code, especially if you're running a business and it becomes a successful business with lots of customers that brings in a ton of revenue. Those are the things that the Microsofts of the world and the Oracle are going to want to tap into and get their, their cut of the share, so to speak. I think I've talked about C-sharp long enough at this point. C-sharp could be a whole podcast episode on its own, or in fact, probably a whole podcast on its own. But that's probably good enough coverage on this one. Because I've been mentioning it, C-sharp is like Java again in that it's mostly statically typed. C-sharp does have a keyword you can use, the quote-unquote dynamic keyword. And if you put it on a variable, then the type checking will happen at runtime. So you could create a var, use the dynamic keyword, assign a string to it, and then assign an integer to it. And the compiler will not yell at you, even though you are changing the type of that variable. But your code will break at runtime. And this is actually a good thing. Static type checking is the default for the language, but it does give you mechanisms to support dynamic typing if you need it. But you have to explicitly call it out. So the fact that it makes that explicit does actually make the language safer in that regard. And now on to number five, C and C++. So these languages are often bundled together, so I'll talk about them both. They're different, but sort of share the same substrate, if that makes sense. So C is a general purpose programming language that was created in 1972. C++ is an extension of C that came around in 1982 and added classes to the language. C++ is therefore object-oriented and C is not. So you could write pure C code and compile it with a C++ compiler, but you couldn't do the reverse operation. When I write C++ myself, I actually find that using C libraries and coding style is sometimes a whole lot easier to do than the C++ way of doing things. Uh, in fact, whenever I have to print something out to the console, when I'm doing some like high-level debugging or something, I don't use C out and the like the sideways carrots to pump strings to the uh, the command line there or the console output. I actually use a printf statement from C. So you can do both ways if you want to, and I'm just more comfortable with C. I think it's it's easier to understand, more explicit, and actually a little more powerful than stringing together commands using the C++ way. If you've written code in those languages, you'll understand what I'm talking about. I don't want to go into those details, but you are welcome to look them up, how to print to the console in C and C++. You'll see how both of those things look in the code and uh, can come to some conclusions on your own if you like. So anyways, C++ in practice actually becomes a blend of C and C++ together. These two languages are really only one logical step above lower level languages like assembly language. In fact, when you compile a C program, your code gets turned into object files, and those object files are linked into your executable program. 
If you were so inclined, you could even tell the C compiler to generate assembly files along with those object files, and what you'll get is a human-readable assembly file to review. The object files are the same code, but just in binary format, for the processor to read. It's fun sometimes just to see one line of C code turn into dozens of assembly instructions, and I've done it a few times, not regularly, because it's not super useful, but it is pretty cool to see. This language is obviously fully compiled. There's no interpreter that it runs on, so it's pretty much the fastest form your code can take in general computing. This is why C is used in embedded systems, microcontrollers, and robotics. It's small, super fast, and you can even easily control electrical signals from a processor because you gain access to the individual bits that comprise your variables. These bits are often memory mapped I.O. lines, which I'll talk about in a second, and these I.O. lines correspond to a high or a low voltage, in other words, a one or a zero, and that's on the physical wire extending out from your microchip. When I say memory mapped I.O., I'm talking about input-output signals. So what you do, or what the frameworks that you would utilize on your microcontroller do, is map a physical line on the microchip into a memory location, and then you use a pointer in C to point to that memory location and set the value in it. When you do that, the microcontroller knows to interpret that into an electrical signal on those output lines. And you can also read from the input lines uh, by reading those memory locations. So it's pretty cool. It's like... It's, it really is as low level as a general purpose uh, programming language can get you. And it's fun to see those things, especially if you're like my background in computer engineering, you would have your microchip, you'd be writing to those memory locations and then viewing them on an oscilloscope to make sure that they're doing what you think they're doing. So it can be a lot of fun to program in that environment. But I wanna circle back to this whole thing I said about C being small. So when I say that, what I mean is when you write C code, you can have your compiler optimize that code. So it'll do a ton of really cool uh, computer engineering-y tricks uh, to take your code and optimize it into what, whatever you want to optimize it towards. If you want to run it to optimize, uh, optimize it to run faster or optimize it to be a smaller size, but trade-off, maybe it doesn't run as fast, but the actual binary that you produce is smaller, you can do all those cool little things with the compiler. And C usually compiles to a smaller size than Java or C Sharp or other uh, higher level languages because it doesn't have an interpreter or runtime that it depends on. So you could produce a uh, binary that's on the size of like kilobytes, right? Like a 50 kilobyte file as opposed to a Java file that maybe it's also, you know, it wouldn't be 50 kilobytes. It would be significantly larger, like, I don't know, maybe... I'm just going to make a number up here, like a megabyte in size, but then you have to import the entire JRE with it. So you're talking about major memory requirements to run a Java program or a different interpreted language compared to just a flat C file or binary that you produce. Now, the caveat here is a C++ file is going to be bigger than a C file. I've actually never seen a C++ program be smaller than C. And part of uh, one of my early jobs was to rewrite old programs that had been written in C into C++. And when I did that, what I learned is sometimes the program itself is more understandable because you can utilize that object-oriented approach to it. But because of inheritance and because of the fact that you can actually have multiple inheritance in C++, what you end up with are multiple different copies of objects floating around in memory. So um, 
a good example of that was I had one uh, object, one class that inherited from two parent classes. And that's not something that you can even do in Java because Java only supports single inheritance. You fake it through the use of interfaces, but in C++, you actually can inherit from multiple parents. And when you do that, you get a copy of both parent code and the child code. So for the one object that you want to create, you actually get three objects created there because you've got copies and copies and copies of code that are being produced. And when you multiply that over multiple objects you're creating, the size of the file just expands significantly sometimes, and the same is true at runtime. So for those reasons, uh, C is usually a better approach if you've got tight resource constraints. C++ is still a better approach than Java in terms of optimizing that size and that runtime, uh, but it is a little less efficient than C in my experience. So that was just a, a small aside I wanted to clear up there about size of a, an application, but let's get back to the memory mapped IO stuff and just what I'm talking about in C when I say it's a low level language. So let's say, for example, you, uh, you can declare an integer, which is 32 bits as a variable in your program. You could also use that uh, variable instead of a, an integer, it could be a short, which is 16 bits, or a char character, which is eight bits. And you can operate on that variable at the bitwise level. In C, especially if you're using memory mapped IO, you will have a tendency to pick the right size for the thing that you're trying to do. So if you've only got, if you've got a really small package for your microcontroller with eight lines on it, right? You're gonna, gonna have a, a power and a ground line and then probably some input and some output lines and, and one for your clock signal, right? So you've got a, a short number of pins. You're probably gonna use a char in memory because you don't have a reason to choose 32 bits for your memory mapped IO because you don't have 32 pins. You've got at max probably four to six pins that you can use on your package. So those things matter again in C and you'll pick the right uh, tool for the right job. And so let's say um, you're building a device and on this device, what you want is a thermometer or a temperature gauge that's gonna feed into your microcontroller. And in your microcontroller, you're gonna read the temperature gauge and then turn on a fan in the system if the temperature is above a certain threshold. You're gonna do this through memory mapped IO where input pins are mapped to a certain section of memory in your microcontroller. In C, you will have a pointer, you'll point it at that memory location and uh, the device will say, let's just say it's a 16 bit, right? So 16 bits of memory. So you've got a short, a pointer to a short in memory. You're going to dereference that pointer. You're going to bitwise mask off the bits in that memory location that matter to you. And then you're going to read the value of those pins. And that's going to tell you what the binary of the temperature gauge is saying. And you'll convert that into a number, check wh whether uh, it's above your threshold or not. And then you will point to another memory location for your output pin that is going to control the fan. You will mask that off with another ampersand and a, uh, a, hex, a hexadecimal code. And then you will write either a one or a zero to the bit that matters to turn the fan on or off. Yeah, I hope that makes sense. Bitwise masking is a whole thing in itself. 
What that means is you're going to use the ampersand sign to mask off data in a variable that you don't care about. Like you may only care about the lowest 12 bits of your 16-bit short, but there is no 12-bit long character that you can use, right? You've got a short, which is 16, or a char, which is 8, and the char is too small, so you use a short to, to be your variable for that particular set of memory. So because you only care about 12 bits, you mask off those 12 and read them because the upper four bits don't matter. They could be filled with garbage data or they could be mapped to something else. So you want to discard that data. That's all I'm saying. To compare C and C++ to other languages, you don't need bitwise access when you're running in the cloud or higher level systems, maybe like a web browser or something. At that level, you're like 10 levels of abstraction away from the hardware, and it just doesn't make sense. So other languages are often better choices. They're a lot safer to use. They are a lot easier to use because you don't have to care about all the low-level details. C and C++ require a great attention to detail not to introduce bugs like stack overflows or memory leaks or leave yourself open to vulnerabilities like buffer overruns. C is nice because it's very simple and basic. The good part is that it only does what you tell it to do, and the bad part is that it only does what you tell it to do. So spawning additional threads, um, multi-threading, it's a pain in the butt. You have to write that capability from scratch or import a library like POSIX threads to do that for you. Then you have to learn how to use that library as well. Managing memory is also a pain in the butt. You have to differentiate and keep track between memory that's in your stack and memory that you've allocated in your heap. You need to know why you're using each type of memory. Everything can also be made into a pointer. You can subdivide all of your variables and access them bit by bit if you want to. And you can't do that stuff in Java or other languages, or you can't do it very easily. That's the power of C and C++. Now, according to my clock, this episode is starting to get a bit long. I try to keep these around 45 minutes or under because they just take too long to produce otherwise. So I'm going to wrap it up here and then pose a question for y'all. So the next five languages that I was going to cover are PHP, R, TypeScript, Go, and Swift. Those are the bottom five of the top 10 most used programming languages this, this past year. So if you want me to cover those in the next episode, email me, hit me up on Mastodon, LinkedIn, or TikTok, and let me know that's what you want. Otherwise, I'm probably going to pick a different topic and maybe I'll get back to the bottom five in a few months or just revisit this at the end of 2023. So to recap and tell you where maybe you should consider learning each language, we had Python, which is easy to learn, used in AI and machine learning, and is also used widely outside of computer science to compute things in a variety of those non-computer science domains. Java is easy to use, general purpose language that's useful for building things that run in the cloud or on the web. JavaScript, it's a front-end user interface type language, and it's useful for transferring data from a user to a back-end server. And now, because of things like Node.js, it's also usable on the back-end. So if you're doing full-stack development, this is a good thing to learn. Next with C-sharp, if you're in a Microsoft ecosystem, that's a pretty good choice. C and C++, if you're doing video game development in Unreal Engine or need a lot of computing power or a very low level interacting with hardware or on systems with constrained resources, that's a good choice. It's a hard language to write well and easy to introduce bugs into for programs that are complex, so be ready to get good with it. 
And on that note, thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you learned something. If I said something that contradicts your experience, then please tell me about it. Email me at hello at grantdryden.com. Hit me up on Mastodon at drydenman at mstdn.social or follow me on TikTok at drydenman. And please drop me a review of this podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting platform. I appreciate all the interaction from you all. Hope you have a happy new year and I will see you again next time. I'm going to go to the hospital.